Don't forget, following the service this morning, that uh, we got plenty of barbecue. We're fixing to go back there and eat. So if there's anybody here that's true Texan, I know you'll stay. First Corinthians chapter 6. In his discussion of Christian freedom thus far, Paul has shown that we need structures of discipline within which true freedom can truly be expressed. I mean, we see the same thing uh, in the world around us in, in road safety. You know, we're free to drive anywhere we want to go. And we're free to drive any way we want to drive. But it's the laws on the roads that keep us safe. For instance, if the speed limit says 55, you should drive 70. <laughs> oh, sorry, I was thinking about me. You should drive 55. Why? Why? You know, there, there are stretches of road that I, I drive down and I wonder, why is the speed limit only this? You know, they're just doing it just to aggravate me. They are, but they're not. They're doing it for our safety. But you see, you're only safe when you obey the laws that are there. We're free, but there are, those, there are restrictions to that, but those restrictions are in order to keep us safe. So what does Christian freedom look like? You know, Jesus came and he said, I have come to set you free, and if the Son sets you free, then you're free indeed. We are free. But there's a paradox here that we find throughout the Bible. We as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who are truly saved, we are free, but at the same time, we are slaves. We're slaves with a freedom. And so we have to understand how that works here. So Christian freedom, uh, how does that look, especially when, when believers are at odds with one another? And it, and it happens. You know, we're all human. We're all sinful people. And, and sometimes when we have matters between us, how do we settle those legal matters? Do we rush off trying to uh, find us a lawyer so we can sue them or sue a church or whatever? Or how do we do this? And apparently there were some in the church in Corinth that Paul is writing to that were doing that very thing. They, they were suing one another, had lawsuits in this. You know, in chapter 5, uh, Paul taught us that we are not to judge the world. That's God's place to judge the world. But we are to judge amongst one another. You have every right and responsibility to judge me as your pastor. I have every right and responsibility to judge you as the congregation. We are to, to be accountable to one another. But on the, on the one hand, though, we are not to judge those outside the church, but on the other hand, the ability to judge matters of legal disputes uh, in cases within the church is a competence that you and I do possess because of a very simple thing. We have the Spirit of Christ within us, and so we are competent. Look at chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Paul said, does any one of you, when he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you and you are not worthy to constitute, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters in this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint those who are of no account in the church as judges? I say this to your shame. It is really this way. Is it really this way? It, there is not one wise among you who will not be able to pass uh, judgment between his brothers. On the contrary, brother is tried with brother. And that, Paul says, before unbelievers. So it's as if Paul is saying, how dare you take these legal grievances that you have against one another as believers and take them to the unrighteous and allow them to judge you on this. And there's a very simple reason for that. Paul is drawing a contrast here between believers whom he calls saints. Listen, a saint is not some super-duper Christian. Every single believer in Christ, from the most immature believer to the most mature, we are saints. We're not saints because of who we are, what we do. We're saints because we're in Christ. So Paul is talking about uh, this, this contrast between those who are saints, those who belong to Christ, and those who are unrighteous, those who are unbelievers. Now listen, secular courts have their place. Paul talks about that back in Romans chapter 13. When he told us that they are here to, uh, in, for God to use them, but in this instance that Paul is talking about here, they are not there to, they cannot truly judge and settle disputes or differences between the people of God. For the very simple that they do not espouse the same Christian values that we have, uh, such as kindness and compassion and forgiveness. So the secular courts do not have these things. In verse 2 and 3, Paul says, do you not know? He, he's, he's speaking to these Corinthian believers, and he's saying, look, I don't understand. Do you not know what's going on here? And, and he points out that the time will come. Now, I, I just got through saying that back in chapter 5, Paul pointed out that as believers, we're not to judge the world. But then here in verse cha chapter 6, Paul says, don't you know we're going to judge the world? But we need to understand that here in chapter 6, Paul is talking about a future time when we reign and rule with Christ. That you and I will judge fallen angels. We will judge the nations of this world with him. And that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying this. He's saying, look, do you not know that you're going to judge fallen angels, demons, demonic people, uh, uh, demonic beings. and But yet you are unable to settle the most simple Legal disputes among yourselves? He, he's kind of perplexed by their situation. But his main goal is to stress to the church is that how the saints will function in the future should affect how we live now. If we will someday judge in eternal matters... Matters of eternal significance, we should certainly be able to handle the affairs of this earthly life 
that require judging. In verse Paul, Paul is wondering, verse 4, Paul is wondering how these Corinthians can place their disputes before people who have no standing in the church, people who have no respect for the values and the morals that we have as believers in Christ. You and I, as believers, we are to live our lives in, in Christ. Being like Christ, showing love, showing forgiveness, showing compassion, showing kindness, especially amongst one another. And Paul says, how can you take these disputes to people who don't feel that way about you? Who don't care about compassion or kindness and all of this? And so Paul's intention there in verse 5, he says it. Uh, he says, I say this to your shame. His intention was to shame them. And his question has a note of sarcasm in it when he says, Is it really this way? There's not one wise among you who is able to pass judgment between his brothers. He says, seriously, he said, in your church, in the church there at Corinth, in the church there at Sherwood Shores, in the church wherever it is, he said, is there really no one in there that possesses Divine wisdom, human, uh, uh, godly wisdom, people that you can go to that, can, that you can trust to settle these situations. Don't take these to the secular course. Now, at, at the end of the sermon, we're going to get to the big thing about why Paul doesn't want us to do this. Why we should not do that. But there's something else that he throws in here before we get to that. But his intention was intent to have sarcasm. Uh, in verse 6, he expresses uh, his dismay that they are taking the legal disputes to the wrong people. He's saying, how dare you expect the secular courts to understand the Christian concept of true Christian love and forgiveness? Verse 7 and 8, he says, actually then, it is already a failure for you. That you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. And then he says, you do this even to your brothers. Paul says that a, a Christian has already lost when he takes a dispute between him and a, and a fellow believer to the secular courts to allow them. He said, you've already lost, regardless of what their verdict is. And we're going to find out why he means that, that we've already lost. The fact that they have appealed to pagan courts shows that they no longer have any trust in God. See, we need to remember something. I had to remind somebody of that this week, of this this week. We're a family. We are all part of the, of the body of Christ. We are members of Christ. We, you realize that if you're saved, okay, I'm going to give you all some wonderful news. You ready? If you are truly saved, you're stuck with me for eternity. And I'm stuck with you. But that's okay. But you see, that's, that's the con we must have that mindset there. And the point is not that Christians should be encouraged to passively accept abuse from others. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, no matter what they do to you, just shrug it off and go on. That's not what he's saying there. But he's saying that, that uh, you know, injustice should not even exist among us. It does, because we are still sinful people. 
So it does exist, but the Christians should make should much sooner bear injustice than bring disgrace upon the name of Christ. That's what it comes down to. You take it to the world. We tell the world we are believers in Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. We are different. We love one another. We forgive one another. We, we have compassion on one another. And I'm going to take my brother to court because he owes me $20 and won't pay it back. And the court says... You people are idiots. And we take it and we say, listen to us. Let us tell you the gospel. And they say, we want to hear anything from you. And, and Paul says, you have disgraced the name of Christ when you do this. Pastor John MacArthur, in his notes of his study Bible, I read this and he says, it is far better to trust God's sovereign purpose in trouble and lose financially than to be disobedient and suffer spiritually. But you see, Paul's going to point out part of the problem here in just a moment. He's going to talk about two gods that existed in the church in Corinth. And I will submit to you, they are two gods that still exist in our churches today, even in the 21st century. All right? <clears throat> Verses 9 through 11. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, Paul says, were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Verses 9 through 11 focuses upon the danger of self-deception, which is difficult to discern. Now, when Paul talks about the, the sexually immoral, he's talking about those who live sexually impure lives. Uh, remember, we go back to chapter 5. Paul, is, he, he confronted the church because there was a man in the church there in Corinth who was having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Now, I'm assuming it was his stepmother or it would have said this man and his mother, but it says his father's wife. But either way, Paul says this is wrong. This is incestuous relationship. And in chapter 5, he comes down on the church because they're not doing anything about it. They're just ignoring it. And this is the thing. And Paul says, don't you know? Now, I want to, I want to stress something here. And I ask you, please listen to me very carefully. We all sin. Even a true believer in Christ can fall into sin. But Paul's not talking about them right here. Paul's talking about those whose lifestyle is characterized by these things. And the only people whose lifestyles are characterized by uh, sexual immorality and adultery and homosexuality and greed and lust and drunkardness, uh, th those are people who are not saved. That's why he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's not talking about a, a person who just falls into a sin. But you see, a true believer may, uh, as somebody has said, you know, sheep can fall into the pig pen, but they won't stay there because they don't belong there. A hog can fall into the pig pen, and he'll stay there because he loves it. And that's the difference between the lost and the saved. 
I have sinned. I have fallen into that hog pen, but I didn't belong there, and I got out. And that's what Paul's talking about. So here we need to understand he's talking about those whose life is characterized by these sins. And he's saying that they are not saved. But this list here in verses 9 and 10, it focuses on the two false gods in Corinth and of the 21st century. And those two gods are this. Are you listening? Sex and money. Every sin Paul talks about here is surrounded by one of those two things. Now, let me also stress something right here. God created sex. There's nothing wrong with sex. Okay? But sex, and you know, you hear people say, well, sex is to be between only between a man and a woman. That's not true. Because you can say that, and that leaves the door open for a lot of things. Sex is designed for a husband and a wife. That's what it was designed for. And anytime you go outside that, then you get into what Paul's talking about here. Again, nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with having money, nothing wrong with working for money. But what Paul's saying is when these things begin to master you, when these things begin to take a hold of you and control your life, then they become a God to you. And this is where these people are. Uh, the danger is that the church, the, the Christians in Corinth were presuming upon God's grace. Let me tell you, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. That as a believer in Christ, I come, I'm faced with a temptation, whatever it may be, and I say to myself, you know, God will forgive me. All I have to do is after I commit the sin, I'll go to God, I'll confess my sin, He'll forgive it, and we'll just go on. And Paul says, that's dangerous. That's a dangerous place to be. And that's what the church in Corinth was doing. They were presuming upon the grace of God, and they were failing to see sin as God sees it. Listen, if you and I, if we ever get to a place to where we can see sin the way God sees it, we will run from it as fast as we can. And we need to get to that place. Habitual sexual sin, love of money uh, among those that are saved is a great delusion. And today there are many who are greatly self-deceived in this area. They say, I'm, this is what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, look, you don't understand, we're free in Christ. We can do anything we want to do. And Paul says, you're not understanding your freedom. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to read where Paul says, you know what? All things are lawful, but not all things are good. Okay? So we need to understand that, that Paul is reminding them that they used to live this way. There in verse 11, he says, such were some of you, but you have been washed. Now, he's talking, and when he uses that word washed, it's speaking of washing away the filth of our sin by the blood of Christ. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about adulterers, effeminates, and homosexualities. Listen, these are three sins right here that are widely accepted in churches all across America today. You realize that? And you know this word effeminate that we see here? In the original Greek, that word means a man who intentionally acts like a woman. You've been watching the news lately? This whole transgender thing? Homosexuality? You know, it, it, it's, it's amazing 
I was, I was scrolling through Facebook the other day, and I came across this little video, and it was just showing all the different, uh, the way they put it, partners that this Hollywood star had had in his life. I don't know, there was like 10 or 12 of them. And I, and I thought about that as I, I didn't watch it, but I just read the thing and kind of quickly went through there. But I, here's what struck me. Today, we see nothing wrong with a man or a woman going outside their marriage to someone else or a single man and woman getting together for a sexual encounter when the Bible says it's fornication, it's adultery. It's sin, and we must begin to look, and we cannot just, we can't say, well, you know, somebody who's, who's single, we say, well, you know, they're lonely, they need somebody, so, you know, let's just turn a blind eye to it. We may turn a blind eye, but I want to tell you something, folks, God will not, and for their sake, if we love them, we will not. And that's what Paul's saying to this church. You know, it's what he talked about last week when we was in chapter 5 about the, the discipline in the church. And he says, look, if you love them, you're going to confront them with this. And so he talks about this. Uh, the, he says that the wonder of God's salvation is this, that regardless of what our lifestyle is or may have been, he talks here about adulterers, Sexually immoral, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. But here's what Paul says. He says something very wonderful there in verse 11. Such were some of you. You know what that means? It means they're not anymore. You know why they're not anymore? Because of the grace of God who in his great mercy forgives them through Christ. So don't get the idea that what Paul's saying here is that if you're involved in any of these sins, that you can't be saved. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying if they continue in these sins, it shows they're not saved, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so he's talking about this, drawing him back to where he was in chapter 5. Look at verse 12. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. <coughs> Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise you up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Listen, you need to take a pen, a highlighter, something, and underline, highlight these words right here, that you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You know what that price was? That price was the precious blood of the Son of God. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your body. It appears that some in Corinth, you know, uh, there in the city of Corinth, there were many temples to false gods, and they had the temple prostitution. And apparently many in this church were visiting the temple prostitutes, thought no big deal about it. And this is perplexing Paul. And in claiming that they were that their spirituality had set them free, they were re tell me if this sounds familiar. They were redefining morality. Do we not see the same thing today? Listen, Christianity is not like other religions. We are by our union with Christ, members of his body. Sin always destroys. Sin always brings death. You know, I want you to notice, Paul says something here that is extremely strong language. Now listen to this. Do you not know that your bodies, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Okay, now think about that. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members? We are one with Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's the picture Paul's setting up here. If I am a member of the body of Christ, if I am part of him and he's part of me, and I join myself to a prostitute, do you know what I've done? I've joined Christ to a prostitute. And Paul here is intending to shock his, his readers into understanding the seriousness of what he's talking about. Something may be lawful for me to do, he says, but does it enslave me? Am I a slave to my passions and am I a slave to my money? If it dominates my life so that Christ is pushed out of the central position in my life, then I'm no longer free. I have now become a slave. Jesus even said it, and Paul said it. He said, to whom you give yourself, that is who you are a slave to. Who are you a slave to? What are we slaves to? Are we a slave to our sexual appetites? Are we a slave to our bank accounts? Or are we a slave to Christ? If it dominates your life, then it become your God. And our creed as believers is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. What a Christian does in the body has eternal significance. The Corinthians argued that 
there, there, there in verse 13, food for the stomach. Paul's being sarcastic again to them. He says, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The Corinthians argued that just as you would satisfy your appetite for food by eating, so one may satisfy their sexual appetite by casual sex. By the way, you know there's no such thing as casual sex. It doesn't exist. That's a made-up thing. But Christ, Paul says, sanctifies and dwells within the believer's body and will raise it up on the last day, just as Christ himself was raised in glory from the grave. Our bodies matter. And Paul says there, he says, uh, don't you know, there in verse 19, your body is a sanctuary or a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know what makes my body a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit lives here. That's what makes it a sanctuary. That's what makes it a temple. And Paul says, don't you know, you are not your own. We have forgotten this. We have, if we ever knew it in the first place. See, the reason we take fellow believers to court over legal matters is because I have rights. I deserve what I have coming to me. Paul says, no, you don't. You say, well, I loaned them so much money and they didn't pay it back and so I demand satisfaction. And Paul says, wouldn't it be better if you never got it than to bring shame upon the name of Christ? But he says, which one is your God? Which one is your God? The point is that those who have truly been saved and are in union with Christ, we are members of Christ, <clears throat> airing our grievances and Secular, ungodly courts brings disgrace. It brings shame upon the name of Christ. You see, I don't have any rights. I don't. You know why? Because I don't belong to me anymore. I've been bought with a price. I've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. And I belong to Him. I don't own anything. You don't own anything. Did you know that? I don't care how much money you have in your account. That's not yours. It's God's. I don't care what kind of house you live in. If you are saved, that is not your house. It's God's. And if you don't believe that, just tell him that it's not and watch him take it away from you. Because he can in an instant. But you see, when we, here's what I'm getting at. The mindset of a believer is this. All that matters in my life is, do I glorify God? Do I serve Christ? Am I his slave? The Corinthians had done something that many people in churches do today. They have their secular life and they have their saved life. There's no such thing. If you're saved, you don't have a secular life. You have a saved life, regardless of whether you're at work, at home, at Walmart, or at church. It's all the same. And there is nothing. And Paul here is saying to him, their whole thing in this chapter comes down to this one thing right here. They have disgraced the name of Christ. And when you disgrace the name of Christ, we talked about this last Wednesday night in our Bible study on, on how to witness. That, that witnessing as a church comes down to this. How do people out there see us? 
Do they see us as people who truly, as Jesus said, by this they'll know you're my disciples, that you love one another? Do they see love amongst us? Do they see compassion? Do they see us reaching? Do they see us acting like a true family? Because if they don't, they're not going to listen to the gospel. And so this is where Paul is saying to this church in Corinth. And you know, Corinth was a church, uh, a city that was just, it was, it was Las Vegas, New York City, and New Orleans all wrapped into one. You know, those are the three most sinful places I can think of. But that's where they were at. And right in there, God put a church. But rather than the church there having an influence on the city, the city was having an influence on the church. Rather than showing the, the people of, the, of that sinful city how God called them to live, they were allowing the people of that sinful city to tell them how they could live. Do we not do the same thing? Yes, we do. Living lives of sexual immorality brings disgrace on the name of Christ. Paul says there in verse 18, we are to flee, run from sexual immorality. Run from it. I'm reminded of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph was a man who loved God. Joseph was a man. He was taken. His brothers hated him because he was so loved by his father. They sold him into slavery. He was sold down to slavery down in Egypt. He went to work for a man named Potiphar. And as Joseph, who was a man who loved God, he served God. And there in Potiphar's house, Potiphar had a wife. And his wife took a shine to Joseph. She thought, that's a good-looking young man right there. And day after day, she was trying to seduce him. And Joseph would have nothing to do with it. And the day came when she grabbed him and she said, Joseph, lie with me. And Joseph ran away from her so fast she ripped his clothes off and he ran away naked. But the point is, he ran away. He didn't stand there and say, now, Mrs. Potiphar, let me tell you the gospel. Now, Mrs. Potiphar, let me tell you why this is wrong. He didn't do that. He just got out of there as fast as he could. And you know what the point is here? Don't ever flirt around with temptation. Don't ever mess around with sin. It's very deceitful. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Run from it as fast as you can. And when we come to God through Christ, he makes us his children. He welcomes us into his family. He, he forgives our sin, but he expects you and I, who call ourselves believers in Christ, to honor him with all that we are and all that we have. Let me ask you something. Does he not deserve that? Does not the God of the, who is our creator and our redeemer, does he not deserve the one who snatched us out of the flames of hell? The one who took us when we were enemies and sinners and made us children of God through faith in Christ? Does he not deserve everything we are and everything we have? Yes, he does. But if we are to use our bodies for immorality, we will deny the cross of Christ and we will frustrate God's redeeming grace. What is it that Paul has been telling these Corinthians in every chapter we've looked at? <clears throat> what, what is it that is behind this rampant sin running through their church? 
It's not something that, it's not so much what they've done, but what they have forgotten. They have forgotten the message of the cross. Paul says, I don't want to know anything among you except Christ crucified and risen from the dead. The message of the cross is this, that it doesn't matter where your sin is, what your sin is, who you are, where you've been, what you've done. If you will come to Christ, he will forgive you of your sin. If you will believe on him, repent, confess, and follow him. And he says, I will take your sin and throw it as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. But it's the message that Jesus came, that Jesus took upon himself our sin. And the eternal value of that. You can't even estimate. And this church in Corinth, Paul is pleading with them. And he's saying, listen, you're, you're walking a, a, a dangerous road. You claim the name of Christ, but you live like you belong to the world. You say you follow Christ, but you live like you're following the devil. And I want to tell you something, folks. You know what the most dangerous thing about that is? That if you really are Christ, God will deal with that severely. Because the ultimate end, the ultimate, what is the chief end of man? To know him and glorify him for what? Ever. To glorify God. So I, we, we, we all must look at ourselves this morning. You know, I learned very early as a preacher a very important lesson. <clears throat> learned it from a man named Charles Spurgeon. Y'all ever heard of him? Yes, pretty good preacher. Anyway that I preach this to me before I preach it to you. So don't think that I'm standing up here pointing my fingers. You know, Stephen Lawson said, remember, every time, preacher, you point your finger, you got three pointing right back at you. So don't think that I'm here saying that I'm this. We all need to understand. We all must get back to the message of the cross. That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And that if I belong to him, I'm part of his body. We're all part of his body. And that we must live not just a spiritual life, but our physical life in a spiritual way, glorifying God. All right, just a few minutes, we're going to come to the Lord's table right here, partake of the communion. And I, I, I counsel you this morning to take a moment and search your heart. As we pray, this is for those who know Christ. And Paul makes it clear as we get over into chapter 11 of Romans, that Paul makes it clear that to do this with known sin in your life is dangerous. Confess your sin. 
Ask God to search your heart and see if there's any wicked way in there, any sin that you're holding on to tight. You know, many of us are like that little girl who got her, mom, her hand stuck in her mom's antique cookie jar. And the little girl was crying. Mom came running and she said, I can't get my hand out of the cookie jar. And the mom pulled and she tugged. And the mother was heartbroken. She said, this belonged to my great-grandmother, and I'm going to have to break it to get your hand out. And the little girl said, Mom, would it help if I let go of the cookie? But many of us are like that. We say, God, would it help if I let go of the sin? And he said, yeah, it would help. So let's pray. And before we come to the table, make sure your hands are clean. Make sure your heart is pure before God. Let's pray. Father. Lord, we thank you this morning for the message of the cross. We thank you, God, that you have provided salvation for those who were your enemies. For your, your word tells us, Father, that even when we were enemies, you showed your love for us and that Christ died for us. I pray, God, that if there's one listening that has never truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that this morning they would understand the, 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 the urgency of today. That today is the day of salvation. And Father, that they would let go of that sin and grab hold of the Savior by faith. Lord, we thank you that as we come to the table that we have the promise that one day we will sit down with you in your kingdom. That we will eat and drink together as your body. Lord, forgive us our sin for Christ's sake. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.